This is Sam. This is Aaron. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have philosopher and podcaster Aaron Rabinowitz. Hi, Aaron. Hey, how's it going? So can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. I teach uh, philosophy, primarily ethics, at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Um, I've been really interested in ethics from from a fairly early age but didn't realize that like philosophy was a thing that people still do until i got to undergrad um and started taking some classes in that and became really enamored with questions about ethics and meta ethics and so uh went out and got a master's um and then came back to the new york area was going to get a phd ended up not and at the same time ended up getting a Uh, teaching situation over at Rutgers. And so I've been happily teaching there and spreading the good word of ethics in podcast form, I suppose. So it was ethics first before philosophy. So what drew you into ethics? Well, I'm told that I had a strong sense of justice from an early age, which I assume means that I was uh, precociously annoying about um, issues of fairness, I think, and such. Uh, I, you know, I was really into reading things like Greek mythology, which is ethics with, you know, swords. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I was really into science fiction, with it, which is ethics with better special effects or philosophy with better special effects. Um, and so I, I've always, I guess, cared a lot about the well-being of other people and wanting them to have good lives. I just, I, you know, I don't mean that in like a, uh, you know, in, impressive kind of way. I just mean that I think I viscerally am aware of the unhappiness of others and has just driven me to try to figure out ways to help them be less unhappy. Do you remember an event at all, like when you were younger, that really made you start thinking about justice? Um, I don't know about a specific, well, I don't know about a specific event about justice, but when I was about 14 or so, uh, my father gave me the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Mm. And I had never read anything like it, and it really messed my head up uh, (laughs) in a big way for several years. And it got me really interested in questions of quality and what is a good life. So to me, ethics is is just as much about what do we mean by human flourishing and how do we live a good life as it is about, um, you know, justice and what we owe to other people. So I would say that I got really interested in the idea that good and quality in these things are real and not just sort of figments of our imagination or or whatever we choose for them to be. And that there's like this hard work to be done in figuring out what actually is a life of quality. So I would say that was probably what set me on this journey. And for listeners who've never read the book or even heard of it, what is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yeah, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is a philosophical fictional text by a guy named Robert Piercig. Uh, It was big back in, I think, the 60s and 70s. It got very popular. It's 
sort of the the plot is the story of a guy taking a motorcycle trip with his son across the country. The you find out over the course of it that this character has a troubled psychological history where uh, he was very very smart but had a nervous break while doing essentially philosophy um, and went through a kind of electroshock that sort of wiped out that personality he claims and so then he sort of the the person you're interacting with in the story is the second personality that has reasserted itself in this individual and it it gets into conflict internally with himself about the questions that he's trying so it's an interesting story of like he wants to talk about these really hard philosophical issues but the closer he gets to being honest and talking about them the more he gets sort of unwound uh psychologically um and in between that plot there are basically philosophical monologues about what he calls quality which means sort of it can mean a sort of a variety of things but it's in his sense means sort of what is good in something in some cases or or even what are the features of something um so we could put it in sentences like um finding quality in doing a challenging activity is a really good mindfulness activity right you you know, something that you don't really want to do, like cleaning, if you can find some way for there to be what he calls good quality in that, then that can be a really helpful uh, practice. Um, so it, I think it motivated a lot of people to think about these ideas of quality as being this thing out there in the world that we can connect to and experience. I got the book thinking it was going to be much more about Eastern philosophy because of the name. And it is very much about Eastern philosophy also, but Mm -hmm. from his framework as a former scientist and teacher. And it is almost like Western philosophy trying to understand Eastern philosophy. Yeah. And he really wrestles with that in the story because I think he is strongly attached to Eastern philosophy, but he has this rigorous Western analytical philosophy style training and he like tries to apply that. And it's interesting because he also, I think, has has a negative view of that kind of training to some extent. I think he feels that the analytic model, um, rather than clarifying reality, sometimes obfuscates it by dividing it up and chunking it in ways that aren't accurate. Um, and so he, yeah, he sort of engages in this great little activity of trying to figure out what quality is and like picking away at it from the analytic direction of like, can I carve this up into romantic quality versus classical quality? What does that tell me about the nature of this thing? Um, But at the same time, sort of observing the um, irreducibility of quality and the fact that it, it resists analysis in the, in the Western tradition and that it, connects in many interesting ways to like the Tao in Taoism. So his big break comes when he realizes that um, what he's been talking about is synonymous with what the Taoists describe when they say, you know, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. What What they're getting at there, and this is, I think, something that like Western philosophy has wrestled with too, and is not like, it's not totally unknown, but is that there are there are things that we experience that may not be readily or completely capturable by language or by analysis of concepts and things, and that they may still be important and things that we can maybe understand in a pre-theoretical kind of mindset. 
So just from this description, I think <laughs> listeners can understand why a 16-year-old, if they're reading a book like this, might break their mind and then set them on a different path. Yeah, 14. And, and yes, it really was. The, it was it was a weird experience. Um, but it's it's been valuable, I think, because when I went to undergrad and started doing analytic philosophy, I had that background. And while it meant that I was in conflict with people some and I needed to um, broaden, like I needed to basically sort of empty my cup with regard to the quality stuff for a little bit and um, really take on board what was going on in the analytic world, because I do think analytic philosophy is incredibly effective and valuable and that even people like myself who believe in mindfulness and, and want to incorporate um, uh, wisdom traditions need to be able to do that in a rigorous um, philosophical kind of way. And there's lots of great work being done on that front, especially in like analyzing um, Indian philosophy, mm. um, the you know, like looking at the debates between Buddhism and Hinduism and being like, these are rigorous epistemic arguments. They're not just, you know, myth mythology or something like that. So I think it was, uh, it, it's been um, valuable for me to blend these traditions together, similar to the way that I think Piercing tries to, um, and to, and I and I think that the academic world is coming round on doing that blending more. I think that there is more desire to have this kind of um, cross tradition pollination. And I think I either read it somewhere or you mentioned it in one of your podcasts, but you grew up doing martial arts also. Yeah, I've done martial arts. I was I was into warfare stuff from an early age. Um <laughs> I had an uncle, not a real uncle, but a um, you know, grad school friend of my father who hung around our hippie household, um, who was obsessed and is still obsessed with classic military all military history but like he did he did miniatures so like lots and lots of miniatures so i um learned military strategies in <laughs> you know ancient greece and and like you know how to roll up a line and like um you know infantry versus cavalry versus all you know like all that kind of stuff i was obsessed with that and and greek mythology and the stories of um the all of these conflicts um, and so when I was getting probably about 13 or so, I wasn't really in, into group sports. Uh, I didn't like the, um, the mindset of a lot of the way that group sports, I grew up in Virginia, so I feel like I was not in sync with the individuals in that particular environment. Uh, and so looking for an activity, right. And said, uh, my parents suggested, um, trying Taekwondo. So I did that and I lucked into, I've, I've the, the one of the, some of the greatest luck in my life is that I've lucked into having really good teachers at, a, at almost all, all my stages of my life. So I lucked into a really good um, Taekwondo instructor who, you know, and, and like we could talk about the different perceptions of different martial arts and like starting out in Taekwondo is a common thing. I think that people do, especially at a young age, um, but it, it was a good version of what we stereotypically think of as sort of the, you know, get your, get your black belt in Taekwondo first um, <laughs> way of getting into martial arts. It, he was, you know, good on teaching um, forms and he was good on uh, practicing application and, you know, building up sort of the basic 
um, self-control skills that that an absurdly precocious individual needs to survive in the world. Um, so that was really great. And then basically since then, wherever I've moved, I've picked up another martial art for the most part. Um, so after that, uh, I was in undergrad and I did uh, Mio Sim karate. So Okinawan style um, karate, which was a good evolution from the taekwondo it was similar in some ways but even more um sort of emphasis on the application which was stuff that i really enjoyed oh i I love doing forms too um so i did that while i was an undergrad and then i lived for a year in richmond and i got in a little bit of i got a year's worth of um capoeira which was a lot of fun and the hardest workout of any of the martial arts that i've ever tried um it is i was like hungry all day every day (laughs) just starving but it was a lot of fun and it was good training um for a lot of movement stuff um and i also did a little bit of collie stick fighting while i was in richmond as well which was fun um i like the i like um weapons work um and then I went out to Colorado to get my master's, and that was when I fell in with Tai Chi. And again, got really lucky and got in with a um, really intense and sort of not not perfect in every way, um, as you know some teachers are, but a really good-hearted, ultimately, individual who also had some really great technique. Um, and I learned, you know, I've been doing... I guess that was 2010 when I went out there. So about nine years of Tai Chi since then. I've stuck with that. Um, when I moved to New York, I started taking on my own students. And I, I I didn't end up finding a particular school out here that I that worked with it. But I've found uh, some sparring partners at various points and have been able to keep up some partner training in that kind of way. Um, and I'm hoping at some point to... Uh, join up with another school when I can effectively, you know, afford it and fit it into the schedule as a a way to keep keep progressing and not just um, practicing on my own. And was Tai Chi kind of your introduction into Taoism, or were you already familiar with Taoism before this? No, I was familiar with Taoism way before this. Actually, um, when I was growing up in my hippie household, instead of reading something like the Bible before. Um, breakfast we would read passages from the Tao, <laughs> and we we had a really beautiful uh version the um english i want to say jane english I'm, I'm so bad at names um I, her name is english and i think guy fu fang is the name of the um chinese translator that she worked with uh or the chinese master that she worked with and it's a beautiful uh, book um and like does a really good balancing of the um philosophy and the language, um, making it accessible, but not sort of losing the... Tr- I think it gets closest, I think. I mean, I don't speak Chinese, unfortunately. I don't read it. But um, from what I've read of analysis, I think that text is probably the most, the best blend of accessible and um, insightful. Um, so we would read that when I was growing up. Um, and it was, you know, we would talk about it and I would try to make sense of it. And um, that was, I guess, another another thing that got me interested in philosophy early on, even though I wasn't putting it in those terms at that time. Um, and so, yeah, so then when I came to Tai Chi, I, I was really excited to find that it was a sort of Taoist in essence, if not in his, necessarily in historic traditions, Um 
uh, that that it captured a lot of the the same important philosophical insights and and was a great sort of moving meditation for that kind of practice. So did this training in martial arts, your interest in warfare, and this early introduction into Taoism, did that really inform the way you approached philosophy later on? Oh, probably. Um, <laughs> in the sense that it probably explains the tension that I experience when doing this stuff, because on the one hand, there's a part of me that like loves the battle um, and like, you know, like loves sparring, right? And so it's like a game. It's like chess or anything like that, where it's like, how do you, how do I figure out the moves? What are the moves and what are the responses to the moves? And how do I make my moves as clean as possible and anticipate as much as possible? And that's, that's useful, I think, but that's also like, you have to be careful to not get so caught up in that game that you're losing sight of the trying to value the actual truth and, um, you know, maintaining epistemic humility and um, knowing when it would be more valuable to acknowledge something rather than disagree with it. Um, so yeah, I do think that it has impacted how I've approached these and like it's impacted in the sense that I'm probably more sympathetic to, um, certain philosophical positions that are sometimes at odds with the analytic tradition, certain views about like the nature of consciousness or the reality that ethics is real things that are, are regaining, I think, traction within academic communities, but that were, I think, a little more on the outs when I was starting out in philosophy and and certainly were on the outs for a while in, during sort of the mid to late 1900s. So you got all this going on. Why did you decide to start not only one, <laughs> but two podcasts? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I don't like sleep, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I have nightmares, so I just prefer not to do that. No, um, uh, we started. Let's see. So here's how it went. I got the job at Rutgers, so I had a commute from Brooklyn at that point. We're now in Jersey, but back then I was you know, traveling across Staten Island. Uh, so I had an hour in the car where I needed something to do, and I finally got into podcasts at that point. Um, and via, I think, Scathing Atheists and uh, and Serious Inquiries and um, that, that whole cluster of shows, um, I got into... Uh, thinking about it as an activity and then a friend of mine gw who was also listening to podcasts at that point who was a sound engineer and also a um avid uh philosophy enthusiast um suggested maybe we try to do a podcast together and it was right around the 2016 election um sort of shortly thereafter and we were looking i think for a way to um do personal therapy because we can't afford <laughs> therapy uh to get us through this horrible timeline that we're living in so we eventually settled on embrace the void as a kind of existentialist philosophy you know um with a hint of hp lovecraft horror like cosmic horror to uh accent things give us a, give us a little bit of uh, brand flavoring um and yeah we we got going talking about all sorts of issues uh you know and it was it was partly a vehicle to make um philosophy accessible to people who who have been interested in philosophy but you know maybe only took one class of it in college or didn't get to take any or like took one class but it was a bad teacher so they didn't learn anything and they thought it was boring um so it's been that in on that show and then um 
from there, I got into, you know, regularly chatting with um, Thomas Smith of Serious Inquiries and Opening Arguments and such. And we had a, a shared love of science fiction and uh, philosophy. And at one point we were like, you know, we should really just put this together into a podcast. And so we in we made Philosophers in Space, where we take a piece of science fiction every week and combine it with a particular topic in as some field of philosophy and use one to hook people into the other. So mostly a lot of my work as an educator, I feel like is centered around figuring out ways to hook people so that they they will stay interested long enough to talk about philosophy that I think they're really going to like and be interested in once it's framed in such a way where it's not and now we're doing you know philosophy open your books to this page and uh read these words that are incomprehensible to you because like truthfully a lot of academic philosophy is utterly unreadable um it's a problem (laughs) like i you know it's in a foreign language a lot of the time and and i it's hard and i don't think that it should be required that people can parse poorly written academic texts in order to you know understand why things are terrible i think is what somebody put it recently so yeah that was pretty much and like i love the podcast format because it's a dialogue i'm i'm a big socratic dialogue kind of fiend i'm not much a fan of sitting down and writing by myself away from other people and things i really like the back and forth the engagement the um the asking of questions that I wouldn't have thought of and like um, asking people questions that they wouldn't have thought of. And that the moment of excitement when we're, when you're sort of digging into something really challenging. Do you think a cause of why philosophical writing is so bad is back to what you were saying about sparring that is written in a way to kind of preemptively block any type of attack against your argument. And it turns <laughs> into this like philosophical legalese jargon so that nobody can penetrate your argument and dispute it because you preemptively do the whole FAQ of all the ways that, no, I've already thought about everything you're going you're gonna to say about this. But then to regular people, it becomes unreadable. Yep. I think that's certainly a, a, a substantial chunk of it, right? We would say, um, before you can say anything in philosophy, you have to say everything, <laughs> which makes it difficult. Okay, that explains a lot. Yeah, well, it's it, and it is. It's just a big problem because... These are really dense, complicated concepts, and they all sort of connect together in really confusing ways. So you're taking this giant sticky web of ideas and trying to straighten it out into one line. And that's, you know, like it's like storytelling. Like, where do you start? How do you do that as is a skill? And it can be a difficult skill to learn. And precision, <laughs> like as I say this, as I, as I slow down a bunch, right? Precision requires slowing down a lot and so it's a lot of it philosophy is thinking in slow motion and so the written version of that is turgid a lot of the time because it's in it's slowed down right when i when i'm doing this stuff i can be sort of fast and a little more off the cuff and i think can be um, more understandable for folks but it means that there are a lot of caveats that are going unsaid that people would say, you know, you know, it, you're not fully getting the idea across. And what it ends up meaning is that I'm conveying my 
um, narrated version of what I think philosophy is and that there are people who will disagree with me on ev almost everything that I say. And so I just try to throw that caveat out as early and often as possible. Um, but yeah, I think part of it is is the desire to try to preempt any of and like I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to to like anticipate objections. I think it's a one of the best things that philosophy teaches people how to do is to say, all right, well I've made my argument. Now let me honestly steel man every or we like to say steel bot every argument that could really seriously challenge my view and try to get out in front and explain why I think it's not going to undermine my view so that when people do respond to me, they can at least um, either push one of those objections further down the line or they can say, I have this other separate objection that you haven't yet addressed. Uh, so I, I do think that is really, and, and it's, a value, it's important because um, I genuinely think that you don't really fully understand a position, a belief, an idea until you fully understand the strongest objections to that idea. This is how we should correctly test our knowledge is not merely by finding evidence for it, but by strenuously conflicting with arguments and evidence against that position. So that part, I think, is important. The the other stuff, I think there are other issues that it's just like, there's a specific kind of language that is somewhat expected or has been expected at various points. I think maybe that's relaxing a little bit. Um, and people are, I think, trying to write in ways that are more functional and accessible. Um, but it, it, it's partly just that it's really, really hard to speak clearly and have it come out also in a way that's um, enjoyable. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm... I'm not, I mean, like I can, I can write decently well. I don't feel like I have anything yet that I, I want that I think is so important that I want to write it down and, and try to get it published though. Um, and part of the reason that I don't publish more is that in sitting down and trying to write, it's, it's awful. It's awful because the words don't ever go together the way you want them <laughs> to. And as soon as you put them down on the page, you're like, well, but that's wrong. Like, put that way it's wrong well if i put it this way it's wrong there's no way to put this where it's not wrong so you just it's just chaos and yeah whereas here i can just blather on and it's fine right there's no there's no expectations <laughs> that's the nice thing about martial arts right you're just moving and it just kind of comes together especially when you're doing forms so the physical body you're like okay it's flowing there is some kind of synergy that takes me to the next move right but when you're trying to sit down and write that same synergy doesn't transfer over yeah, and some people can get there. You you talk about you ever heard of the the phrase flow states? Yeah, it's probably, yeah, it shows up in martial arts as well, right? Where you get in that flow, you get in the groove, and you you feel you know your sense of self kind of drops away, and you're really in that moment. Uh, some people can get there. I can get there maybe sometimes when I write a little bit, but I really never. I have a much harder time feeling flow states when I'm writing as compared to when I'm dialoguing. I would yeah. say. So I really wanted to bring you on to talk to us because with this podcast, I'm trying to educate people on two things. Actually, it's one thing with two offshoots, which is how to think good. And one branch of that is how to think good about combat sports, martial arts, sports entertainment, things like that. And the other branch is how to think good in the academic sense. And uh, kind of how a boxing coach has to spend some time undoing a lot of bad habits, a new student learn from their uncle joe let's say right mm -hmm. this is a political project really meant to undo a lot of the bad thinking techniques people accumulated from joe rogan 
Okay. So, so what all I that understand. said, <laughs> that's, that's a tough hit. That's a long hill to climb, but yeah, I get you. So with all that said, I wanted you on to give us a primer on ethics, because if people really are trying to do the right thing, then we need to know how to identify what the right things are. Mm-hmm. But because this is the first time we're going in depth on this topic, I want to try to keep this pretty one-on-one. I don't even know if we should get into meta ethics. That might be just way too over people's heads. And, and I might stop you a lot to define terms. You might be saying a term that you think everybody knows, and I might stop you on occasion to be like, what, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. But first, let's start with ethics. What is ethics? Yeah. And I just want to point out right out of the gate here, right? There's, this is controversial what this word means, and it's going to be controversial what a lot of words mean. Um, and so I will give you the definition that I think I like and I have come to, and I will do my best to signpost where other people might have differing opinions, but understand, again, there are people out there who are much smarter than me who will probably disagree on any of these given points. Um, so what is ethics? I I tend to define ethics very broadly because I think that it should encompass all of the things that are related to us, basically living one's life well. Okay, so that to me includes questions of, you know, what are important projects to engage in in life? What is a life of happiness and flourishing? Um, Things like you know, increasing pleasure and reducing pain for individuals, respecting their autonomy. So like also including um, what some people might consider the sort of more narrow idea of what you were saying like earlier with justice or right and wrong, um, what obligations we have towards each other, um, which is sort of like often focuses in on like specific single actions like, you know, what should I do? Um, Should I save these people or these people? Uh, you know, do I have an obligation to save people and sacrifice myself? Questions like that. Um, and I think all of that, everything, and I really think that like pretty much every action we engage in in our lives, pretty much every part of our lives has an ethical component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, what I think we want to do is try to bring ethical awareness to as much of our lives as we can. Understanding that doesn't mean that we kill ourselves for the sake of others all the time like there may be limits on how how much obligation we have to other individuals but i do think we should at least be aware generally speaking whatever we're doing when we're doing something you know does this have a you know unintended ethical consequences that i'm not actively considering that where i'm thinking about them more i would refrain from doing it so that to me is i guess broadly speaking what ethics is and then I divide ethics into sort of three inner three connected, but also sort of um, in, independent layers. Um, so we have at the ground level um, applied ethics. These are questions like, you know, should we allow people to fight each other for money? To put it in terms of the you know of our particular topics here, um, you know, is it? Uh, good to engage in things like martial arts and other practices that some might consider violent or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one level up from that is what we would call normative ethics, which normative is just a word that just means like norms, like of norms in a society. It just means action guiding technically. So like um, this is the level at which you get ethical theories like 
uh, utilitarianism, the view that you ought to produce the most pleasure and the least pain for everyone. And we can talk about these theories and, you know, if you want to dive more into particular theories, but I'll just lay, lay a few out here. Um, deontology is another big one at this level, which is, you know, acting rationally in reference to the moral law, respecting one's duties to others, um, uh, following the categorical imperative, um, at this level, you also have things like virtue theory. So that's the view that you ought to habituate yourself to act virtuously so as to lead a life of flourishing. Um, rights-based views are going to be at this level, right? People have a right to autonomy. People have a right to uh, vote. Um, all those kinds of um, what, what some would call like constructivist views, like social contract theory kind of views about how we get to our ethical norms. Um, and then one level up from that, right, the high at the peak of the mountain is meta ethics. And I think you're right. That we probably don't need to get into that too much on here. But for folks who are interested, it's questions about uh, the nature of morality itself, the nature. And I, I, by the way, I use the words morality and ethics interchangeably. Some people distinguish them. I don't think the distinctions are actually very valuable. So um, the nature of ethical truths uh are they real? Are they just things that we made up? And that actually, I think, is a really important question for a lot of people. I think how pe how seriously, on, on a functional level, how seriously people take ethical considerations, I think, has some roots in whether they see it as something real or something that humans just made up to mess with each other, right? <laughs> Uh, or to control each other, um, to put it another, to put it in the Nietzschean kind of way. Um, so yeah, those are the three levels and they, they, they can influence each other, but it can also be the situation where like you and I agree on the meta ethical level, but we strongly disagree on the, the normative level. We, we believe in, you know, totally opposite, um, normative theories, but we come back together and agree on the applied level on most issues or something like that. So there can be disagreement at one level and agreement at another level and vice versa, right? We could be, you and I could both be utilitarians, but have totally opposite views about what that means for euthanasia or something. So somebody might be listening to this and be like, he's really overcomplicating things, you know, an objection I've heard with ethics, why even study ethics in school or read a book about ethics? People are like, you don't need to go to school for this. You just know it. You just learn it, yeah. you know, through life or your parents or church or whatever. So why go to school? Why do you need such academic rigor for ethics? I, w I wish it were true. Um, <laughs> oh, I wish it were true, too. <laughs> I wish it were true. You didn't need any of this. Um, I mean, I think the evidence pretty strongly suggests that if you do not get some form of ethical education, things go very poorly. Like, um, this is why I'm sympathetic to Aristotle's virtue ethics and that I think he's right that human beings are creatures of habit. And if you don't get habituated into being ethical, um, you have problems later on. Now, that being said, I don't think that everyone necessarily does have to learn all of the ins and outs of every ethical theory in order to be a good person. I think that developing what we would call practical wisdom, the, the ability to figure out what what is right and wrong in given situations, is a kind of muscle that people build up over the course of their lives naturally. If uh, on the you know on the ho on the luck that they are. Put in good, you know, put in the right situations, challenged in the right ways, and you know, positively trained and reinforced in doing the right things. Like I do think that the end result there is hopefully that um, the they are 
good at functioning as a good person, at thinking about what might actually hurt other people, at having empathy. I think empathy goes a big, a long way for a lot of people. Um, and and like Aristotle would agree again, he would say, you know, learning the laws of morality doesn't make you moral any more than like if I lectured you on how to fight but never let you spar right you wouldn't get better at fighting you you need to actually practice the activity itself so i do believe that people are intuitively right that ethics is something we have to practice out in the world not just talk about in theory now that being said <laughs> ethics is really actually incredibly complicated it is not simple um we uh you know, human beings can be habituated to in have a strong, I think, intuitive sense of it. But even that goes awry in a variety of situations. And if you look at the history of human 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 existence, right, both on a large social scale and on small interpersonal life scales, like there's a lot of evidence that people would probably benefit from a little bit more ethical education. Um, and that when they do get eth ethical education, which is usually from family members or religion uh it's often really inconsistent and unreliable yes <laughs> and like you could get better versions of it if you know people took ethics classes from an early age where they thought about these things and were challenged on them like i do think it would make a huge difference in how people behaved and I think the reason we don't do it probably uh is probably a couple of reasons one is budgets um but another is uh, religion and family has dominated the ethical landscape for much of human history. And I think they're really uninterested in seeding that area as, as they have had to cede science to um, academics. And so there's a lot of concern, I think, about it. Like, it doesn't even come up a lot of the time, but I feel like if you raised the idea, you'd probably get some pushback along the lines of, these are things that aren't supposed to be taught in schools. These are things for being taught in the home. Um, then they should be kept separate in that kind of way. Otherwise, there's a fear that uh, us liberal professors will indoctrinate your children into, you know, you know, into non-religious ethics or something like that. Yeah. Which is not what I do, by the way. I, um, I'm happy to talk about religious ethics as well as non-religious ethics. I do have some arguments against divine command theory that I think are pretty devastating. Um, but I also think that I would take a ethical theist over a um, unethical atheist any day. Um, and I do think that you can have plenty of both. Now, kind of like you, I got into philosophy just as an enthusiast, not as an academic, but through ethics but what brought me to ethics was martial arts. And the final culmination of this downstream movement from martial arts to ethics to philosophy is politics now. So mm -hmm. a lot of people identify with their politics first, whereas like politics is just an extension of all these previous things. So the reason why I bring that up is because then the way I think about philosophy is the same way I think about martial arts, which is about systems, right? Like you said, I could learn self-defense stuff or martial arts stuff on my own. Maybe I'll teach myself a la carte or through my Uncle Joe or through my family the same way I could do with ethics. But the problem with it is it's not systematic. And when it's not systematic, then it becomes very unreliable and it's also self-defeating and full of contradictions. So let's take even a martial art that is controversial like Aikido as far as effectiveness, right? Mm -hmm. But even still, there are still things that you can learn from it because 
it's Aikido still stays consistent to itself. And so that's why you'll hear judo people, you'll hear wrestlers, you'll even hear uh, mixed martial artists talk about concepts from Aikido that they can use to off balance people because it still has to stay consistent to itself. So I think uh, for me, the way I frame ethics and why academic ethics is important is because of that consistency that what I would call being systematized. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And my my understanding, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, you probably know more than I do, is that like the some of the Aikido stuff actually comes from the Tai Chi traditions, that they, they're using a lot of the same kinds of um, ideas and that there might be actually some direct lineage there. Um, but yeah, I... I think you're right that what's what's valuable in the academic work is that it forces people to slow down and stop using what they you know their common sense way of approaching ethics not that we don't I wouldn't say we totally get rid of the intuitions and the use of intuitions in ethics but we um we we rigorously uh critique them and try to you know present counterexamples that seem to undermine them um and raise issues um and I think the reason that ethics is so messy and untangleable is because um, these different normative views that I was referencing, deontology and utilitarianism and such, they are intention, right? So the goal of producing the most pleasure and the least pain is intention in many situations with the goal of maximizing personal autonomy and personal freedom. And we have to figure out trade-offs there. And there isn't one system that can unify them all perfectly, right? I'm, I would say I'm a pluralist, which means I think that they they all have something to bring to the table and the way they go together is messy and we can't fully perfectly systematize it. And so we end up having to develop this kind of practical wisdom where we try to incorporate as many of these ideas as we can and keep them in a balance where it feels like, well, at least I'm not completely abandoning one idea for the sake of the other, right? I'm at least paying some deference to autonomy while also trying to produce the best outcomes. So it's hard to systematize, but do you still try to stay consistent then when you're thinking about this in academic terms? Yes. And I think there are some kinds of consistency that are like a lot of good ethical arguments are essentially arguments from consistency. So like, for example, you know, Singer's arguments about animal rights just goes like this. You don't like suffering and dying and feeling horrible pain. Uh, animals can suffer and die and feel horrible pain, so you shouldn't do that to them, right? And there, you can you can systematize that further, but it's I think there's uh, value in arguments from consistency. I think that the the civil rights movement and the, the expansion of the moral community in the past 150 years has been in part because of rigorous academic arguments by folks like John Stuart Mill basically saying, you know, these are persons, they're just persons like everyone else. And so they must be treated the same way. So let's say somebody has some very like Ayn Randian libertarian selfish form of ethics, right? Mm -hmm. But if it stays consistent, then if they have a problem with Barack Obama doing something and Trump does the same thing, then they should also have a problem with Trump if they were to stay consistent. Yes, that would be ideal. Um, <laughs> you know, human beings are not rational actors no. a lot of the time, and they often aren't consistent. And it's 
it's hard to be perfectly consistent, but we should strive to be more consistent. Um, but that's my example of the value of consistency. Let's say it's a school of ethics we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. So long as it's consistent to itself, there can be times there's overlaps with your beliefs or your system or your school of thought. Yep. And I agree with you. And here's the thing with ethics. I'm always going to say I agree with you, but and here's the other side. <laughs> yeah. Um, Right. So there's a classic quote, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of a little mind, okay. which is to say consistency and obsession with consistency can go too far as well. So let's talk about deontology a little bit. Right. Our friend Immanuel Kant, uh, who pe people have probably heard of Kant, um, was obsessed with rational consistency. Yes. So his view of ethics was um, what we ought to do is find the uh maxim or the the motivation the the principle to act uh that we can universalize such that everyone can act upon that maxim and that he believed that this was the most rationally consistent thing to do was to act in such basically similar to the golden rule kind of right act in such a way that you can be okay with everyone else also acting that way um and that's a good idea. It's, a, again, a strong intuition, a really important. Um, and it leads to good principles like um, don't treat others as a mere means to an end. Treat them as an end in themselves. But in Kant's case, for example, he took the consistency to an absolute nature and said, you know, you can never lie because lying will undermine truth telling for everyone. So you should never, ever lie. And then the question is like, well, really? Like... When the Jews are in your attic and the Nazis are at the door and they're asking if there's any Jews in your attic, do you really not lie, Kant? Um, and most people would say, no, that's insane, right? Like, you obviously lie at that point. You you become like, and, and again, you can reframe that as consistency by saying, well, my principle is don't lie except in situations where doing so there's a much greater moral good, right? Um, which is a more consistent principle, like a principle you can be more consistent about, but then you're creating complexity, right? Then it's like, well, what's what's a good enough reason to lie? And then you're off to the races in terms <laughs> of like lots of different perspectives on when, like, so, you know, some people will try to have these absolutist moral rules because hell, at least they're consistent and you, you know, you have a, you have a principle to stick by. But when you do that, you give up flexibility. But when you start trying to bring flexibility into the system, as you're well aware, that produces inconsistency. So ethics <laughs> have you ever played dungeons and dragons i have played many many role-playing games um including dungeons and dragons um i was mostly a world of darkness um okay. nerd growing up so i played that those games a little bit more than D D. they appealed more to my um goth sensibilities uh <laughs> but yeah but the reason why i bring it up is another thing that early on influenced me in a lot of ways even though i didn't play a lot of it but i played enough of it where i was really fascinated with the character alignments right mm -hmm. what type of ethical alignment they had and they had these things like lawful uh, neutral chaotic and there was good and evil versions right so when i think of consistency it's not consistently being good the consistency can go to either spectrums of good and evil. You're being consistent to being lawful or neutral or chaotic. Mm -hmm. In Kant's case, I think of him as somebody who stays consistent to lawfulness, which can be also lawful evil, right? Which is these like absolute rules. But maybe I'm biased by D&D, &D, but the worst alignment was being chaotic. Because then chaotic good wasn't necessarily that good and chaotic <laughs> evil wasn't that good because it was always unpredictable. 
So maybe my bias was, well, lawful can also be lawful evil, but lawful evil mm -hmm. is still has some stuff that could be good better than chaotic mm -hmm. evil. Am I oversimplifying? <laughs> does D&D not overlap well with ethics? Well, actually, I think it does perfectly. And then there's a little bit more. But um, I mean, like I, I certainly would say I grew up chaotic good and then probably have <laughs> mellowed into neutral good in my <laughs> old age. Um, but there, I want to throw out a good um, resource for folks who like this stuff. Uh, there's a online comic called Existential Comics. Yes. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, I'd highly recommend. And they they do a series of D&D &D games played by famous philosophers. And so Kant gets assigned lawful good, Hobbes gets assigned, you know, like they all have their alignments based on their philosophy. So yeah, I do think that that you're not wrong. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that looks sort of like how lawful should we be and how good should we be and um different perspectives. And so yeah, so like a Randian would be like, um, well, I guess they would say that they're lawful neutral, I guess. But uh, some of us might argue that they move, tend a little bit more towards lawful evil, perhaps. But like, here, <laughs> here's the here's the problem with the alignment system, right? Um, and then I'll get to the problem with the consistency thing again, because there's always more problems. Um, <laughs> the problem with the alignment system is. Um, in the real world, nobody aligns as evil. Nobody sees themselves as you know, like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people like want to call themselves evil. But most people think of themselves as good and whatever they're doing, they're doing it for what they consider to be the right reasons, I would say. Um, you know, that like millennials and younger gener generations might say, well, I think I'm trash, but I don't I don't necessarily think that they mean I'm out to cause harm to other people for my own pleasure. Um, I feel like that's a pretty rare type. Um, and so, you know, I think in ethics, we want to talk more about like uh, obligation to the self versus towards the other. Like how much do you owe towards others versus how much can you say I only have this much obligation um, I have much more obligation to my personal self and my family and my community or something, my close community. Um, so, but I also wanted to throw out another problem about consistency, which is there's some doubt, some good reason to doubt that human beings are the sort of creatures. Like I said earlier, I hope that human beings are creatures of habit and that we do, I do think we become better through habituation, but I don't think it means that we're necessarily very consistent a lot of the time. I think that consistent good behavior is just as much dependent on the environment, the circumstances, and that if you took even someone who was habituated to be good and put them in the right circumstances, they would quickly succumb to not being good. Uh, so it's very important that we not fixate on making good people and also think about making good systems, which is why I think it's good that you care about politics and not just ethics, because the the systemic political level is an important part of ethics because those systems determine how ethical individuals end up acting a lot of the time. We've covered a lot of ground already, <laughs> but what are the top three schools of ethics? Okay, well, I have, I have to give a, a few more than three, or else I'll get in trouble. But I'll keep it. I'll keep it. I'll keep it limited, right? So there's the utilitarians, um, following Bentham and John Stuart Mill and Peter Singer. This is your uh, consequences are the thing that matter the most, and the consequences that matter the most are some version of maximizing pleasure or pain or, or minimizing pain or uh, good outcomes for people desi maximizing desires. There's lots of different versions of utilitarianism, um, but that's one camp. Um, the Kantian slash deontologists are another camp. 
Um, they are the certain means cannot be justified by any kind of ends opposite side of the spectrum from the utilitarians in that, you know, if you if you put them in the most simplistic kinds of terms. Um, and then you have the virtue theorists who arise from in our Western tradition from the Greeks um, who um, talk about the, the grand life of flourishing and like what it means to have a fully good life and the, the habituation of, of a good character. Um, and that, that one arose, that one sort of fell out of favor for a little while and then regained prominence in like the sixties and seventies and has been growing, has been building market shares since then um, as an alternative to deontology and utilitarianism. Um, but honestly, again, I want to say all of these could you know you can argue that they flow into each other so like Immanuel Kant the great deontologist there's a good case to be made that he's a virtue theorist and like John Stuart Mill he makes arguments that look almost identical to virtue theorists so there are ways that I think they all run together like this yes. um, and then the other ones that I need to mention are uh, rights-based theories of you know like what kind of rights people have and those usually go hand in hand with social contract kinds of theories which say that like what is good or what is a just system is one where everyone would wouldn't be able to reasonably refuse to buy into that system so it's um they they try to get their sense of what is good via um analysis of what everyone could get on board with essentially i would say those are the main i think i think i'm i don't think i'm leaving out anyone someone's going to get mad at me but yeah i think that's pretty much <laughs> the big ones <laughs> so from my observation and like you said none of these are like neat categories I, i'm very much influenced by taoism so i consider all of this very capricious anyway it's all messy <laughs> the world is messy you yeah. can't fit them into nice little boxes uh -huh. but we could kind of like generally talk about things so long as we understand we're talking about them generally mm -hmm. but from my observation it seems like a lot of academics seem to find a uh, uh, I guess the most popular one for academics that I've observed is utilitarian ethics. But for regular people I run into day to day, maybe it's my bias of being around a lot of martial artists, the system or uh, the type of ethics they come up on their own, mm -hmm. that they create on their own, maybe informed by movies, their parents, plus self-help books and stuff they see on YouTube is virtue ethics. Mm -hmm. That's the one that seems to like kind of like solipsism is like the first uh like philosophy whether you know the name of it or not like that people kind of realize on their own without having to take a class which is like you know i know what's at the end of my fingers i don't know what's going on with you or anything else <laughs> right skepticism yeah for sure yeah yeah virtue ethics seems like the first one whether they know that's the name of it or not is the, mm -hmm. the one people come up with on their own and i'm curious would you say within that community that stoic style virtue ethics is particularly popular that's why I had to bring up the internet and YouTube and stuff mm -hmm. because I could see how now YouTube and the internet and these self-help books are influencing them because it used to be just kind of more like duty based or like, mm -hmm. you know, what would make me a good person and it would be more based around movies. Mm -hmm. But now it is, yeah, much more informed by like these stoicism, like YouTube videos and speakers they see and like people like Jordan Peterson and yeah, yes, it's a, it, it's, it's a mixed bag out there for sure. <laughs> Um, and here's what I'll say. So about stoicism and virtue ethics, um, I I like stoicism. I also think that it's not the ultimate. I think that it's 
a step in the right direction, but not going far enough, in my opinion, in my analysis of it. Um, but that being said, some of my best friends are Stoics, is what I had it, right, to, to make the joke. Um, you know, we had Massimo Pigliucci on the show a while back. Um, we had a two-parter with him where we talked about Stoicism, which I thought was a really great conversation about um, the strengths of Stoicism. And also he let me sort of raise some of my objections um, about um, how far it goes on the issue of free will. Uh, I do think that Stoicism is a useful mindfulness tradition. Um, I think Taoism is a better mindfulness tradition, but I think um, for folks who find, I mean, I think Marcus Aurelius is a, an incredible thinker and people should read Marcus Aurelius. And um, there is good stuff to be had in Stoicism. Um, and so I, I but I, I, it does it does matter who you're getting it from, I think, because yes. there are some folks who misread Stoicism as being this view that like emotions are bad and so you have to suppress emotions um where it's more complicated than that there are there is some tamping down of emotions but again it's much more like in Taoism, where it's about acknowledging the existence of the emotion accepting that it exists and not over identifying with it um so i i think there is some good stuff in there i also think that like it's a little problematic the way that stoicism has been commodified the way that all mindfulness traditions are eventually but stoicism has been commodified as basically mindfulness for men um as like a way to cater specifically to men who don't want to i guess learn about uh, other certain kinds of traditions but like feel like if it's packaged in this um stiff upper lip kind of terminology or something or like the western the western uh, sort of the, the um the greek kind of idea of excellence uh, feels sort of historically resonant for some people i think um and like i think that's okay i think that's fine i do think that you should also explore these other traditions uh, you know i think that the more of these different tradition mindfulness traditions people explore the more they can you know find the things that are really working in each of them so there's that then what's the problem with just utilitarian ethics? Well, so there's something wrong with every ethics, right? So your virtue theory problems are, are A, maybe there's no such thing as stable character, like I was mentioning earlier. And so the idea of habituating a consistent virtue is just a, a an illusion. Um, and that like also virtue theory isn't always very clear on what you're actually supposed to do in a situation. It doesn't give you a concrete do this versus do that. It says do the right thing in the right way that the the virtuous person would do it and you're just supposed to have you know built up the muscle enough to do it right in that particular moment so that might not feel particularly functional for some people in certain situations so well, what's wrong with utilitarianism well it depends on the kind of utilitarianism um broadly speaking the problem is going to be uh if you really commit to the utilitarian idea that the consequences are the only thing that matters are you willing to accept some pretty nasty means to achieving those particular ends? So, for example, Peter Singer, the same you know uh, guy who has had a substantial impact on the animal rights movement by making a lot more people vegetarian with his arguments, I think. I think there's pretty good evidence that he's actually had an impact in that way. Also argued that um, disabled, severely disabled infants that it is ethical, it is morally acceptable and perhaps morally obligatory to euthanize them because they will lead lives of such abject suffering that 
um, the right thing to do is just to end their lives then and there. Um, and that got him in a lot of trouble with the disabled community. Um, and I think he has moderated himself on that view to some extent, but it is an example of the kind of risk that you run when you really wholeheartedly commit to the ends justify the means. You know, other examples can be things like torture, um, and, and so what the utilitarian, of course, for every objection to every view, there's a book pushing back on it that will say, you know, um, we can incorporate these concerns. So if the means would cause such massive amounts of harm, then that's part of the consideration of the ends. And so we limit ourselves to what kind of means we can use, which ends up being like setting boundary conditions that are effectively deontological so again you end up mixing the theories together yeah. to try to like offset the problems of one theory over another i've seen a lot of people try to use bayesian reasoning with utilitarian <laughs> ethics to get all the gray area yeah and and so like um a lot of utilitarians i would say a lot of times these days when people are utilitarian in nature usually they will express it not not, not always a lot of them. I have to be careful about my terminology, right? <laughs> don't want to don't want to say anything too clear here. Um, yeah. A lot of them are effective altruists these days. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, effective yes. altruism, but that is a offshoot of utilitarianism. That is basically utilitarianism plus more empiricism, like more data gathering. And it's like the idea is figure out what activities will produce the most utility overall and still the same basic utilitarian idea and then focus all your energy on those activities um and there's a you know a lot of different sub theories within effective altruism about what actually is the right way to maximize utility but i would say that like utilitarianism is alive and well at the glo you know at the political level where people are often having to make decisions about what kind of world we're going to move towards and what the costs are going to be for different individuals versus the benefits for different individuals you really can't escape it i think at that kind of level um and that it's also big in in the charity world still um in trying to figure out what are the right charities to focus on what are the right problems to try to fix um so and and uh, you mentioned bayesianism and i'll say i i'm not a bit well maybe i'm a bayesian creature but i don't I don't feel like I really have enough background in the theory <laughs> to be able to talk much about it, except to say that I have I share concerns that other people have, that it's um, often a theory that's used to try to uh, fancy up gut intuitions um, and that it's not often clear what people are doing when they say they're being Bayesian. Um, and so I just stick mostly to like making arguments and then like trying to find counter arguments to those arguments yeah. and like, yeah. So, well, it kind of reminded me what you were saying about effective altruism mm -hmm. and I'm well aware of, you know, just from the internet, people are talking about it a lot, but a lot of the people who talk about it are like thought leaders. And whenever it's a thought leader talking about it, I start to get skeptical. <laughs> Not that it's inherently wrong, but I sometimes like, who are the people talking about this? Then it's the same thing with Bayesianism, where it's a type of like, you're trying to use probability theory to ethics, right? And in, in this way, like what, mm -hmm. well, what's the percentage of suffering here versus, you know, if you broke it down to percentages, then utilitarianism gets a lot cleaner except we're not supercomputers, but you have all these kind of people who are aspiring to be Silicon Valley types. Yeah. They're not even real Silicon Valley types. They're aspiring to be. And so they're, they're the ones who are always using that term, whether they could really do that in their head or not. That's where we're all like, 
yeah, I get the idea. Whether you can do it or not, that is unclear. Good. And this is another big knock on utilitarianism, a lot of, or consequentialism, broadly speaking, including utilitarianism, is we're not very good at predicting consequences a lot of the time. No. <laughs> um, in, in, especially in like interpersonal situations on the fly. Um, you know, you can't stop and do utilitarian calculus. And they, like, the utilitarians used to do this stuff too. Like, a li- some of them would like, claim that they could write out mathematical calculations for what would produce the most utility. Um, and like, I don't want to totally knock on the quant side of things because I do think that there is important empirical work to be done about, you know, will this um, method or this method produce better outcomes for individuals on a variety of metrics. Um, but it's hard. And a lot of times for normal human beings in day-to-day ethical life, um, it, it seems like it's very difficult to be what we would call an act utilitarian, which is try to figure out the maximum utility in every single action. Um, at, rather than slipping into rule utilitarianism, which says figure out what set of rules, if everyone follows them consistently, will tend to produce the best outcomes over time. Um, and again, you see the same basic patterns of act utilitarianism is more flexible, but more unreliable, whereas rule utilitarianism is more reliable, but less flexible, right? I mean, from just the stock market to gambling has proven forecasters are really bad. And all these people who say this, they never seem to try to apply this like ability to predict in any of these, you know, gambling markets or, or investing markets. And when they do, they suck at it. So even when they lose money, it doesn't doesn't make them think, oh, maybe I'm wrong on this. Yep. And then the other side, of course, is right. If you, if you watch Good Place. Yeah, I've seen some episodes. There's an episode that talks about the character Chidi and his thesis, um, his his um, PhD thesis, where it's like 1400 pages. And like halfway through, he says, but of course, everything I've been saying up to this point could be wrong. And here's why. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I think about when I think. But on the other hand, to make things worse, um, we can't ignore consequences. So the utilitarian's response can be, well, yeah, it's hard to predict consequences, but if you go the uh, too far the other direction and just say, we're only going to focus on intention and the nature of the action itself and do like Kant does and says, you know, it's the right thing to do even if it produces the worst consequences or something like that, um, that's a bad way to go too. So we, we are stuck trying to figure out what the consequences will be and predict them as best we can and trying to counterbalance that with not infringing upon too much personal freedom or something in the process. Um, so this is why I say, yeah, we're, you know, we're stuck. We're stuck doing ethics all the time. You can't, <laughs> you can't escape it. Um, and it's incredibly complicated. And the more you think about it, the worse it gets. Isn't the whole joke with that philosopher character, he's an ethicist, but he's in hell. <laughs> so how did that happen? Mm. But that's the joke, right? And for me, at least, I think of it like kind of uh, maybe Kant would be in hell. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> like going back to the D&D alignment, if you just stay lawful regardless, then maybe a lot of times you did a lot of lawful evil. Yeah, no, they do joke that Kant is, in fact, in hell. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so the reason that Chidi, that character in that show that everyone should watch, it's in its last season and will be sad. Um uh, the reason that Chidi is in hell is because he's supposed to be the stereotypical indecisive ethicist, where like he's so caught up in how intractable the ethical problems are in the way that I've been describing that he never does anything, right? He's completely frozen. And so he ends up being unethical because 
he never actually manages to do the right thing. So uh, part of being really an ethical person is at some point biting the bullet and doing what you think is the right thing, I think, and hoping that it is the right thing, right? Think going back to our Taoist connection, um, you know, the Taoists don't say never act, right? The Taoists say abide in non-action and when the moment of action comes, do it without grasping. That to me is is true ethics. And I think he struggles with the do it without grasping part. Um, and it's hard. It's a lifelong practice. Um, and it also, I'll point out, um, there's good evidence, empirical evidence that ethicists are not actually more ethical than anyone else in the world. <laughs> um, we're still just as likely to steal books from the library and stuff, oh, apparently. Well, we're fucked then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ethics is the study of how, why, how and why we are fucked. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the field. Another form of ethics I've heard a lot about recently is care ethics. Now, mm -hmm. is that an actual school of ethics or is that just like a term that people are using for rights-based ethics or, or what is it? Yeah, and I feel bad. I should have included that on the list uh, earlier. That's that's my fault. Um, it's... I didn't, I, I, no, I just, I, I made a mistake. I absolutely should have included it earlier. Um, it is. You're the ethicist. Of course it's your fault. No, I screwed up. Um, <laughs> the reason I didn't is because it is in, by some people considered a sub theory rather than its own theory, that it's kind of, that it might be a virtue ethics with an emphasis on caring virtues. Um, well, here's how, here's what I'll say, right? It's a debate of whether any of these theories is actually separable from any of the other ones. So that shouldn't be a knock <laughs> against care ethics. Um, care ethics is a theory of, um, it's, it's, it arises around the same time that virtue theory becomes popular again in the 1960s and 50s and 70s, somewhere around there, um, uh, over that period. And it's, a pushback on the over-rationalizing of ethics, the feeling that like ethics has become too much about the view from nowhere and like taking on the perspective of the universe and using that to figure out what we ought to do and that what we need to, and, and that the reason that it has done that is because it has been dominated by men and men tend to emphasize thinking over feeling as being a source of knowledge. And so the empathic side of ethics had sort of languished um, while everyone was doing this pure rationality, maximizing utility stuff. Um, and so folks like um, Gilliam uh, come along and say, we, we need to recenter empathy and caring relationships as being what is the the real essence of being a truly ethical person that like when we think about what is a good life and being a good person it's a life filled with caring meaningful relationships where we genuinely care about the worth of other individuals um and so um that that ends up being a system that encourages people to focus more on their interpersonal relationships and a little less on the objective maximal utility or something like that. And you can find connections in other traditions that go along with care ethics, like, you know, when Kant says um, human beings are the true end in themselves, um, you could argue that care ethics is about understanding that and, and caring about people as ends in themselves and not as just tools to be used for your own benefits. Um, but I do, you know, I do think that it shares a lot with virtue theory as a, a recentering on personal flourishing, um, and, and the, the, the best means of personal flourishing being, um, meaningful relationships as your projects of worth in life. 
I could see conservatives really hating this form of ethics. Yeah. To them, they're like, this is just girly, liberal. Feminizing of ethics. Yeah, cultural Marxist postmodernist bullshit. Yeah, and so <laughs> how do we steel bot their objection here, right? Like, <laughs> what are the problems with care ethics? Because again, every ethical theory has problems. Um, I think that care ethics has some difficulties in... Um, just like virtue theory in being clear on what it's actually advocating for. Um, and I think that it, I, I have some concerns that it leans a little too much into our natural human instincts to focus on interper small interpersonal relationships as our ethical interests and not worry about large-scale ethical concerns quite as much. So I think that can be um, a challenge for it. Um, and that it, that it sort of maybe leads well so here's what i'll say right the care ethicists would push back and say you know we're for uh, an ethics of care not just overrunning people with care right there's clearly a form of caring that goes too far and like becomes helicopter parents and becomes um you know participation trophies in the bad sense or whatever you want to like you know cash that out for the right wing's perspective um but the care ethicists would say that's not what we're on about we're on about just re-emphasizing in a world where we've lost um, the idea that caring is an important ethical project, re-emphasizing that as something that we should value. And that like th there are important implications for the fact that we've stopped valuing it, such as that in the real world, um, care activities are often viewed as non-monetary you know, non or like you shouldn't be compensated for them or they're not labor in some kind of way. And so what are traditionally female coded jobs tend to pay less and be valued less by our society. Um, so I do think that they can make a case that they do carve out some important issues um, in in the way that the world, especially was structured 40 years ago, we can hope that some of it's been incorporated now. Um, but yeah, it, re it runs the risk of slipping into the vice of um, narrow parochial personal interests over considerations for a larger set of uh, individuals and their well-being. Now, we touched upon this earlier and you said you mentioned how politics is important, right? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you were a pluralist. And we also kind of went into the background of your duality of Eastern and Western philosophy and physical activity to the mental activity that you have to do. So if your politics is downstream from your ethics, what kind of politics is it? Like, do you have to create your own kind of politics or uh -huh. is there already a type of politics that exists that fits mostly into what you already believe is ethical? Yeah. So first, let me just say um, the East West thing. Uh, we talk about it that way. I, I do think that it's bad ultimately to distinguish in those between those two things that I think there really is just philosophy and that like there are no absolutes about the difference between the East and the Western philosophies and, and that we should move away from that eventually. But, uh, you know, we're stuck still sort of categorizing things. Right. Um, but anyway, I just called the whole thing Eastern philosophy. We should so. just call the whole thing Eastern <laughs> philosophy. I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> Solved. Um, so my politics, uh, I do spend a lot of time being sympathetic to different political views. I ultimately have, I think, a strong political bent and I will say in full disclosure, it is it is related to the one that I was raised with um, and the one that I was habituated into uh, is a liberal progressive kind of worldview. I 
Um, I believe in a liberal society in the sense of a society that governs minimally, except when to when preventing harm towards individ towards other individuals. Now, I, it gets complicated because I, there are situations where it's hard to say that an action really only harms the individual who engages in it rather than harms other people by extension. So things like um, the opioid crisis. Right. I think that we have to have interventionist approaches to addressing serious social ills um but yeah so i would say that i'm a liberal in that sense and i'm a progressive in the sense that i believe the purpose of society is to promote progress for human beings on a variety of things on improving quality of life on um improving how we treat people how we act ethically making us better persons essentially um and that society itself can progress that it can move from failing to understand ethical truths to understanding them better and promoting them better within society um now that being said usually people put that intention with conservatism and there is a sense in which we do need some conservatism i think that um you know success comes from uh being willing to try new things and then keeping the things that work Right. And so the conservatives can make their case that, like, the reason they're here is for the keeping the things that work side of things. Now, in practice, in our country, in my lifetime, they have not done a very good job on the keeping the things that work. They've done a bad job. They focused on keeping things that didn't work. And that has meant that it has thrown our society into a really bad situation politically because they've they've really that because the the right has become intellectually and ethically bankrupt in a lot of very discernible ways and it's going to be really hard to bring them back from that um and so the reason i identify as a progressive and not as a conservative is i actually think human beings tend to be risk averse and they tend to over conserve rather than lean in the direction so if we're talking virtue theory right the golden mean i think for a society is to lean towards progress over conservation because human beings by nature i think tend to be neophobic and so we need to promote um, the other side of our nature a little bit more. This actually builds upon conversations I've had on this podcast about Taoism and how a lot of people misconstrue it with political centrism. <laughs> and from my interpretation and the guests we've had, it's always kind of like, no, humans tend to have a lean or there might be a lean during the time. For me, like so much of what I learned about Taoism, I've read a lot of texts, but for me, it was just training and feeling movements and for me to be dead still with somebody where we're, neither one of us are throwing each other doesn't mean we're both like not moving. A lot of times it's kind of like I have to kind of 70% push into him for us not to move or I have to 70% or 90% pull for it to be static, right? Mm -hmm. It's never 50-50. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what Taoism is. For it to appear that it's not moving or it's in the center, it can't actually be in the center because we're never living in a time that is in the center. So kind of what you were saying, you lean progressive because that's the only way to price in all these different things that you mentioned. Yeah. And I will say there is, so, so stoicism also comes in for criticism as being overly centrist. Um, and I think this is a common problem for mindfulness wisdom traditions. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that we legitimately have to wrestle with in our lives because these traditions do in part say, you know, the key to flourishing is 
wanting the world to change less, right? That like, we're really attached to wanting the world to be a certain kind of way. And that attachment is the root of suffering. And so to have more want less is a common refrain in Buddhism and Taoism and Stoicism. And when it comes to social justice, that to have more want less may, for some people, slip into placation or the status quo or, you know, slow walking social change or something like that, right? That like, um, you know, folks like Jonathan Haidt, who I'm not a huge fan of, um, you know, think that like, or, or have suggested things that like, what the modern, you know, the new generation needs is more of that stoic acceptance and less like um, emotional um, anxiety about the current problems in our system. Um, and so now I think the the synthesis there, right, the way the, the way through there is the balancing of, you know, it's, it's non-action, right? Non-action is, is in, in its Taoist nature paradoxical. It's saying effortless effort, right? It's saying act without acting. Um, and that's what they mean, what I interpret them to mean is, you know, act, but also manage not to have too much attachment to the outcome of your actions so that if things do not improve radically and quickly, you're not crushed by it. Um, but doing that while still continuing to act is hard. Like, this is this is just like we're evolved biological creatures who our motivational systems involve angst and, and stress <laughs> and like being unhappy so that we will change the things so that we will have more of the resources to survive. So like getting a motivational system to work without slipping into those patterns is incredibly, incredibly hard. So it's all existentialism. <laughs> so existentialism, yeah. Um, radical freedom. No, um, <laughs> no. I mean, I think existentialism is part of the pie too because it's you know it's the part where we get meaning once we've recognized that meaning is not coming from God and is not coming from some external source, and we need to figure out how do we determine meaning. And then in the process, we realize well, there are things that are meaningful out there in the world, but they're not handed down in quite the way that we understand when we think of like religion or something. Now, as a philosopher, what are your thoughts on the intellectual dark web or IDW? Oh, um, I have largely negative feelings about the intellectual dark web. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I try to have positive feelings about everyone, right? I try. <laughs> everyone is where they are because of their luck. And I have to acknowledge their luck as well as my own. I think I think the intellectual dark web is mostly doing more harm than good. Um, whatever their intentions are, all right, I'll leave their intentions to them. But I think, um, you know, the the desire to paint academia as e e ideal ideologically evil and out to cause massive harm is causing massive harm. Yeah, like I get students who come in scared that I'm gonna make you know make them write you know gender isn't real on the first day of class like God's not dead style <laughs> or something like and I don't think gender is real like <laughs> I don't but I, you know I teach people to make arguments and like that's what most of us do we teach people about opposing arguments we probably have our own perspectives on what argument there is actually right or wrong in those cases but painting academia as being a brainwashing institution like we can barely get the kids to do the reading the idea that we're brainwashing <laughs> all of these children is absurd um <laughs> so like i i think that it's a lot of fear-mongering and it's yes. a lot, the, the the centrist uh anti-sgw world 
you know, the intellectual dark web and Quillet and all of these, you know, and, and Joe Rogan is adjacent to that. Anti-SJW, right? The anti-SJW thing is a big problem. And like, it's making, you know, and, and because it is the, this kind of concern trolling, it has this uh, unfortunate feedback where, you know, it, I think, drives some of the kind of behavior that it's looking for. Like it, it tries to, you know, entice it so that it can then pounce on it, um, which is not good for the discourse. And it gives a lot of cover to far right people to say a bunch of really, really fucked up stuff um, under the guise of, well, we're just having a discussion. Um, so I, you know, I love debate and I'll square off with anybody. Um, but I also think that there's a fetishizing of debate by this group yes. that like they really do think that debate is the solution to all social problems. And I think there's just a lot of evidence that um, you're not going to convince a bunch of people by debate and that oftentimes debate just reinforces people's particular views and spreads problematic views to people who had not heard them before. So there's a lot of complexity. And I, don't, I mostly find that these folks are not interested in complexity, that they're no. interested in pushing a very specific social narrative and cherry picking the bits of evidence that they can get to in order to keep their audience, you know, to throw red meat to their audience. Yeah. Um, and there's so much evidence of it, like Quillet, you know, has had to retract things that it didn't yes. do any, you know, any due diligence on some of which were just straight up hoaxes, others of which were white nationalist um, talking points like that's that's the the problem is when you buy into that intellectual dark web narrative you become credulous towards stories of the left gone too far or stories of you know where we're just having a conversation about the science um and you you become sort of inured to the ethical implications and you become um unable i think to see the broader picture a lot of the time and we're lucky quillette even did a retraction because a lot of these publications won't even do that right and like i mean quillet the guys the people who run quillet are and like Guilt by association is a problematic argument, okay? I don't think you can just say, well, this person's friends with this person and that's a problem. I think you can build a case, though, that, like, given their publications, given their consistent defenses of Andy Nago, despite what we now know about this individual, like, yeah. they have a clear bias, a clear slant, and it impacts their materials. Now, does that mean that they should be banned from the internet? Probably not. I don't think that we can go that again. It's a balancing. Like, would the world be a better place if Quillet didn't exist? Yes. Can we force <laughs> that world to exist? No. Right. That's the the detention between maximizing consequences and personal autonomy. Right. And and like, there you go. All right. I'm not I'm not interested in canceling these people. So I've thereby undermined their central narrative to begin with. Um, but I'm also not for pretending that they're causing no harm. Like. I, and I don't think that saying they're causing harm is the same as saying we necessarily have to get them off of this thing or we're going to cancel them or something like that. But I don't think it's I think we've gotten to this point now where centrism means I'm going to pretend that both sides aren't causing any harm and expressing their views ever. Whereas like the reality is some views lead to harm in ways that others don't more predictably. Radical centrism. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Business class radical centrism. <laughs> So to slow things down, we were talking about the intellectual dark web or IDW. Mm -hmm. So for people who don't know what that is or have heard it but aren't too familiar with it, here's my take on it. So it's sort of like new atheism. It was initially a small group of people, but then later evolved into a tribe and a way of thinking. And so the same is true for the IDW, which is essentially, in my opinion, overconfident idiots who think they're smart. <laughs> 
But now they have a tribe and followers and they try to present themselves as modern philosophers or the term they often use all the time is public intellectual. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I probably qualify as a public intellectual. That's a real thing. I prefer um, itinerant philosopher, but it's, (laughs) you know, same idea. So my question is, has the IDW obfuscated what real philosophy is then? Uh, The IDW gives, I think, well, I'm hesitant on a lot of things here. Um, I I don't like the use of the term real philosophy because like even I think Ayn Rand is real philosophy. I think it's very wrong philosophy, but it's not (laughs) like she's not doing philosophy. So I think in a sense you can say, some of the people in the intellectual dark web are doing philosophy. I would are, I would say they're not. They didn't do the reading first a lot of the time, and that's a major problem. They have a big issue with feeling like they know a field without needing to read about it. Um, folks like James Lindsay, in particular, can uh, come up on that one. Um, and like and Sam Harris, if, whether or not you include Sam Harris is uh, you know up for debate um, again because this is a sort of semi-existent group right um some folks will tell you the intellectual dark web doesn't exist or it was never a thing some of these people have used the term in their you know profile materials at various points yeah um if folks are interested they should read the bear i mean i I will never ever in any other case suggest someone should read a barry weiss article but barry weiss (laughs) did the intellectual dark web write-up on at the new york times and it's for the most part, an accounting of the people in that group with some pictures that are incredibly funny. And everyone should go and laugh at those particular. They did a they did a photo shoot and they're like all standing in bushes and stuff. And it's really, it's really good stuff. Um <laughs> But yeah, so have they I think that they've made it harder to do certain kinds of philosophy publicly. I think they've made it very hard to talk about feminist philosophy publicly. They've poisoned the well, is what I would say, in a lot of these kinds of discourses. It's, they've made it very hard to talk about the concept of social constructs. They've made it very hard to talk about social justice as an ethical issue. Um because a lot of them are just doing really bad philosophy a lot of the time. They they make really specious arguments. They're not valid. They're not, they don't follow in any reasonable way. Um, they'll appeal to, they do a lot of nut, uh, what we call nut picking, right? Where they just find the, like the opposite of um, steel botting, right? This is, this is straw botting, where you just find the <laughs> weakest possible version of the thing you're trying to attack and you light it on fire and you dance around it like you've accomplished something. Um, I feel like a lot of what they do is, is that kind of thing. And then there's like, there's the more serious work that's not just dunking on the left, where it's a different kind of bad, where you have folks like Jordan Peterson um, promoting sort of self-help that is not very good for people, I think. And and like, I'll say some people feel like they've gotten a lot of good stuff out of Jordan Peterson. I think that his the stuff that is good is so anodyne is to be like available via breathing. Um, whereas the stuff that is bad, which is a lot of trad uh, gender conformity, you know, suspicion about left progress um, is just, you know, harmful conservatism repackaged as safe centrism. Um, And so I think a lot of the intellectual dark web will claim to be centrist or some of them will claim to even be somewhat left. But if you actually look at what policies they argue for, if you look at the arguments they make, if you look at what sources they're drawing on, they, they don't look that way. Um, they look at least moderate 
you know, moderate right, or or even in some cases, pretty far right, because like Ben Shapiro is part of this. Um, so I think it it ranges from uh, like the libertarian to the um, alt right uh, adjacent or alt right engaged. That uh, Jordan Peterson has connected with individuals at various points who were members of the alt right. Um, so. I think that one of the other major concerns of the intellectual dark web and of Quillet and of this, you know, centrist radical centrism TM is uh, it it provides an on ramp. And there's some really creepy data about this that it provides, especially via YouTube, an on ramp for normal people. And by normal, I I, I don't mean anything special other than just like people who don't spend a lot of time on, on Twitter dealing with this kind of stuff. Right. It takes them and starts them in a place that seems plausible and pushes them eventually into places that involve conspiracy theories and um, far more seriously right uh, views. Um, Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, have you seen that movie, I Heart Huckabees? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, it's the philosophy comedy, one of the only ones I could think of. But there was a person in there. She's the dark lady of philosophy. And there was the whole thing about dark philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And it reminds me of the intellectual dark web. Is there philosophy of the light? Are people like you and others, are you fighting back? Or are we gaining some ground here? <laughs> I don't. I think it's a little funny initially to characterize me, the prince of the void, as being um, the side of the light. That's. I, I like to think that I... I give I give the light and the dark both their due, right? So again, going back to balance, uh, yin and yang, right? You need you need yin, you need pathos, you need to deal with the dark. And I don't, I honestly like another thing, right? Going back to the intellectual dark way, right? Another thing they love to to crow about is they're willing to have the hard conversations, right? And that's like the dark side of it, where they're going into the dark, scary, hard places and they're addressing the hard, and they're not. They're just, it's like the same, you know, race realism and like, but what if we don't actually give everyone rights kind of bullshit? Um, But I do think there are dark, scary, hard places that you have to go when you're dealing with ethics and things. And I think we need to go there and have those conversations um and i think we often don't get to because like the hard conversations that people claim that we're having are really these sort of surface level questions um so that said right uh your question was about you know are we making progress um i think I, I I get trapped in what I call the paradox of progress, um, which is I think we are both making progress and not making progress, um, right? I think there are some discrete examples in which we are absolutely clearly making progress. We have, you know, in, in, we've made slavery no longer publicly acceptable in the world, in theory, right? Not everywhere. And this is where I would say the, the flip side is we're not making progress because there are more people in slavery in the world now than there were prior to the Civil War, for example. They're just in the form of human trafficking at this point. So um, I think we make progress, but I think it's not uniform. And there's often a lot of backsliding and we're in a state of backsliding right now. And while I think it, you know, it also depends on what metrics you look at. We've improved many forms of quality of life through modern medicine. Um you know, we have countries where we generally speaking have a rule of law, which is a huge step over previous systems. Um, but at the same time, we have a very, very long way to go. And it's not clear that we're always going to be headed in the right direction. I don't believe, for example, that like 
um, as a social progressive, I don't believe that society necessarily moves towards progress. I think that we have to push it that way, right? Um, to, to quote MLK, right? You, is, the myth of time is assuming that uh, things just naturally will get better over time. There's no evidence of that, right? The arc only bends if we actually physically bend it. Um, so I think progress can be made, but it's very hard. And we shouldn't ever think that we've really fully gotten there. I think. But what about Twitter? Are we winning back Twitter at least? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Twitter. Twitter is a cesspool. Um, (laughs) But it's a cesspool where if you cultivate your little corner of the cesspool properly, um, you can get some really useful stuff. I've made wonderful connections, including yourself, on Twitter. I've met lots of really interesting philosophical people and stuff from other communities that I've been trying to interface with for ethical education purposes. Um, so I I think that it can be, like any technology, a great tool for good and a great tool for evil. Um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to have social media without it being used to as a as a gathering place as a, as a way for people to come together and do great harm um and that it there are lots of problematic incentive structures within all of these um social systems but i also think that if people are trained right they can get a lot of good out of it so we've covered a lot of stuff and in speaking of the social media cesspool then where can people find you Oh, yes. So let's see. Um, I mean, you got the podcast Flossers in Space and Embrace the Void are both on all major podcast apps. And um, you can also search us. We have websites um, on Twitter. I am most of my time on uh, at ETV pod, uh, where I uh, engage with the intellectual dark web when they'll actually respond and also argue with lots of other people about lots of other things. And also, I think, make occasionally useful um, comments about philosophy. Uh, and then also over at um, Zero G Philosophy is the other Twitter handle for Philosophers in Space, where I tend to share a lot of amazing Star Trek memes, <laughs> is pretty much, and um, keep people abreast of the show. And then folks should come and join our philosophy. It, it's it's really for both podcasts, but be, for naming purposes, it's the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, um, where we have a, a, a wonderful community of people who who share a lot of philosophy shirt posting but also have great discussions about philosophical topics um it's to me the best online community that i've ever gotten to be a part of and i'm really proud of all the people in it all right well i'll put all of that in the show notes thank you aaron my pleasure thanks for having me on this was a lot of fun if you enjoy our show tell your friends write us a review donate to our patreon and most importantly subscribe and keep listening if you want more content like this one.